Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On this week's episode, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study of the church. Speaking of churches, if you're looking for a place to worship, a people to connect with, let me encourage you to reach out to us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville. You can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. You can call us at 479-442-4634 or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Again, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study on the church with a message taken from Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15, entitled, The Church You've Always Wanted. Let's listen together. Well, the book of Acts records how the first church turned the world upside down. That's such a neat phrase. It's not one that some preacher coined. In fact, those words were spoken by some people in Thessalonica, not uh, in a complimentary way, but in a critical way. These that have turned the world upside down have come here also talking about the spread of the gospel and how the gospel as it was spread changed things. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that everywhere the apostle Paul went, there was either a revival or there was a riot or there was both. The gospel made a difference on everyone, even those who did not receive it by faith. Now, this spread, this fantastic spread of the gospel in the book of Acts was not a result of the superior strategy that the church had for church growth or for multiplication. It wasn't because they were able to win some influential people that embraced Christianity, some politician or whatever who uh, influenced others. It wasn't because of the theological, the quality of the theological training of their leaders. For it was said about them that they were unlearned and ignorant men. It wasn't because they had a compelling advertising campaign that just set things on fire. It wasn't because of their praise band their lights, their smoke machines, their children's and student ministries. It wasn't because of their bus ministry or their big events. In fact, all they had was the Old Testament scriptures as the New Testament was yet to be written. And when the Bible in the book of, or in the New Testament, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, mentioned some almost 100 times about the gospel being preached, understand the gospel they were preaching was out of the Old Testament. The New Testament was not even recorded yet. In fact, it tells us in the book of Galatians that God preached the gospel to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 22. So the, the gospel is the full drama of God's story, beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, where there is the creation of a garden, and then that garden being invaded by the enemy 
Satan himself and the catastrophe that resulted from that. And then the last two chapters that would later be written is about a new heaven and a new earth. So they turned their world upside down, not as a compliment, but as a complaint. They were not because, it was not because of strategy or skill or size or strength or street smarts. It was the old scriptures, the Old Testament. They were people who were gospel Shaped, And that is the key truth that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that the early Christians and their leaders were gospel-shaped people. They didn't just believe the gospel. They were shaped and molded by the gospel. And, beloved, there is a vast difference. These gospel-shaped people took their mission very seriously. Pastor Dan preached about that last week, the mission of the church. They had marching orders. They were told to spread that gospel to the ends of the world, and they were willing to risk life and limb in order to do that. Understand this about the Great Commission. God just says to go. He doesn't say anything or make any promises about you being able to come back. He just says to go. Sometimes it'll cost you your life. Sometimes it'll cost you your livelihood. Sometimes it may cost you even your family. But are we obedient to go and share the gospel? So I have a question for you today. You've heard it before, no doubt. It's one that's been around for a while, but I believe it conjures up a mental picture for us that we need to think about. And the key question is this, will we be, talking about Calvary Baptist Church, will we be a hospital for sinners or will we choose to be instead a museum for saints? A hospital for sinners or a museum for saints? Now, that's the word picture for this week. I'll have another one for you next week because as we draw to a close this study of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of Christ, we have to then decide, will we be that church in this day in which we live? A hospital for sinners or a museum for saints. Let's think about those two things and maybe put some descriptions on the board. Let's talk, first of all, about museums. I like museums. Do you? Uh, I love to go to a museum and, and see whether it's an art museum or whether it's a historic museum. Uh, I believe, I, I just find them fascinating. But what about museums? What are some of their characteristics? Let's put these on the screen. First of all, museums deal with the past. They show you how things used to be. They deal with the past. They're very nostalgic. And it is a turning point in life when you get to the age that you go to the museum and you remember using the things that are now on display. And you wonder how long before they put you on display as a relic of the past. It's very nostalgic. It's a safe place. A museum doesn't challenge you very deeply. It's a safe place. It is a remember when. 
It deals with relics of the past, as we've said. And basically, for us living today, it is a very unreal world. An unreal world. It's why, you know, when we get into senior adult ministry, we like to go eat at a nice restaurant like the Cracker Barrel and go to a museum. Okay? It's a bit of an unreal world, but it helps us remember what life used to be like, and we wonder why that's boring to the young people. Now, in contrast to that, hospitals are very different. Hospitals don't deal with the past. They deal with the very real present. They're not a place of nostalgia. They're a place of cutting-edge technology. You want your local hospital to have the latest and the best. It's not a safe place. It's a place where they deal with life and death every single day. In contrast to museums where we maybe enjoy going. We don't enjoy going to the hospital either as a patient or visiting patients. We just don't care for it. But it not only deals with life and death, it's a place that deals with birth and with healing. And for that reason, we desperately need hospitals. It's not an unreal world. It's a real world. And it deals with ever-present change. Now, folks, if every museum in the world ceased to be today, our lives would get along okay. But if every hospital ceased to be today, we would be literally in a world of hurt. Amen? Now, I believe churches are much like those two entities. Some churches are very much like museums. Museums for saints. They only look at the past. They think about how things used to be and do their best to hang on to the way that it's always been. And I believe there are certainly things that we need to hang on to. We need to hang on to the truth of God's Word, for it is an unchanging truth. We need to hang on to many of the traditions of the gospel and of the church, for they are the eternal and timeless truths and practices of God's Word and of God's people. But most of the time, the things we want to hang on to are just the things that make us more comfortable, are just the things that make life better for us, things that are nostalgic, things that are relics of the past, things that are safe. And in contrast to that, the Lord's church needs to be a hospital for lost sinners and a hospital for saved sinners like you and like me. It needs to be a place that deals with life and death, with birth and healing, with change. We need to use the best tools at our disposal uh, in order to do the things of God more effectively. Will we be, as Calvary Baptist Church, a hospital for sinners or a museum for saints?
It's much easier to choose the museum route. It's much more difficult to choose the hospital route. To be a hospital for sinners, we've got to deal with the issues of sin in our lives and in the world around us. We've got to speak the truth about our culture, even when it may cost us to do so. We've got to be willing to deal with hurts, with habits, and with hang-ups. And every last one of you have an assortment of those. You've got hurts in your life. You've got some habits in your life that need to change. You've got some hang-ups where you need to think differently, and so do I. Hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And to get involved with the hurts, hang-ups, and habits of others is not easy or pleasant. It's gospel stuff. It's what Jesus did. It's what Paul did. It's what the first church did. It's what gospel-shaped people do. Now, in the book of Acts chapter 16, we read about the conversion of three very different people. We'll only mention one today. We'll talk about the other two next time, Lord willing. But the conversion of three very different people. The gospel was a gospel for all men, for all women, for all boys, for all girls. No matter how good you were as a worshiper of God or how evil you were as a torturer of other people or how demon-possessed you were, understand the gospel was the answer for all of these people. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He had not planned to go to Philippi. But God's providence, we'll talk about that a little more in a moment, God's providence got him there against in, contra in uh, contrast to his plans. And while he was there, this is the story, taking up in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. You've heard the story of Lydia before. We've talked about it in a Bible study on a Wednesday night, a couple of, two or three years ago. 
You've read these words, and they're not new or surprising to you. You probably know the story every bit as well as I know it. Let me do my best to share with you what I believe the Lord would have us learn from this story today. I have three points from this passage. The first one is this, the place of Lydia's conversion. The place of her conversion. The Bible tells us that Paul had come to Samothrace and to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. This was a place that was, among other Roman colonies, were known to be little Romes. They were as much like the great capital city of Rome as you could make it in these districts around the Roman Empire. It was their best and their duty uh, in planting these cities and in colonizing these cities to make an outpost of Roman government, to make uh, Rome present where the sun would never set in the Mediterranean area uh, on any land that was not colonized by Rome. Now, Lydia, this woman, was not from, uh, from Philippi. She was from Thyatira. If you know your geography, let me remind you that Thyatira was almost 300 miles distant from here. And it was separated by the Aegean Sea. It was in a different country, a different area altogether. Thyatira was in Asia Minor to the east. It was an Asian city. That's where she was from. Her business took her to Philippi to travel hundreds of miles from her home to conduct her business. This was very unusual for a woman at that time. She was a very determined businesswoman. She was evidently a very successful businesswoman. Now, Lydia was in Philippi because of opportunity, because of it being a Roman colony, a place where there were high Roman officials. There was a good opportunity for her to sell her wares. The Bible tells us that she was a seller of purple goods. Now, that seems like a strange thing to be doing, uh, to be selling everything purple. She had uh, a corner on the market of purple stuff, and particularly what was purple were garments, was clothing. Now, understand this about purple as a color in that day and time. It represented royalty. It's what kings it's what royal members or high officials wore. Only very wealthy and very high-ranking people could wear it, not because of any kind of law, but just because of the economics of it. The purple dye that was used to dye fabrics, uh, that royal color, came from a shellfish at the bottom of the sea. That was not easily harvested in that day and time. They did not have 
the underwater breathing apparatuses and all the other means to do so. It meant that someone had to take hold of a rock and jump over the side of the ship and let the rock take them to the bottom and while holding their breath to harvest these uh, purple or these shellfish one and two and three at a time and bring them back to the surface and then do it all over again. And then those shellfish were taken and they were broken open and the purple dye that was inside the shellfish was extracted one drop at a time. Now, once you had enough of that dye to dye a garment purple, you didn't do that on just any old piece of cloth. You didn't do that on some other rough piece of, uh, of woven material. It was reserved for the very best of cloths, cloths that were oftentimes uh, imported from the Far East, silks and other very expensive uh, pieces of cloth. And they were dyed with this purple dye. Understand, it was very rare. It was very costly. She did not have any other competition. It was kind of like being the only good popcorn store in town. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in. We've got some purple popcorn if you need some. And so she came to Philippi. Why? Because there was a dollar to be made. She was there out of opportunity. She was a prosperous businesswoman. The Bible also said she was a worshiper of God, but understand, she was not a Christian. She was a worshiper of God. She attended a Sabbath day prayer meeting down by the river with a bunch of other women because you know men. They don't go to prayer meetings. They go out for fellowship breakfast. The women go to prayer meetings. And there Paul found this group of women, and he preached the gospel. Now, in contrast to Lydia, Paul was in Philippi, not because of opportunity, at least not the opportunity to make a dollar. He was there out of obedience, and he was there to make disciples. That's his goal. That's his business. That's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples. Followers of the Lord. Now, I said Paul never intended to go there. How do I know that? If you go back to the verses previous to what we read, it's very interesting. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's traveling across um, uh, the area of Galatia in a roughly northwesterly direction. And the Bible says that they decided, and he had Timothy with him by now, he had several companions, and they decided they were going to turn to the left, to the southwest, and go down into Asia Minor. But the Spirit hindered them from doing so. God said no. We don't know what stopped them. We don't know what circumstances 
But God was at work in those circumstances. Maybe a bridge was out. Maybe there was a, a, an angel with a flaming sword standing before them. We don't know how God stopped them in their tracks, but God wouldn't let them go to the southwest into Asia Minor. So they said, okay, we can't turn to the left. Let's go to the right. Let's go to the north into Bithynia. But once again, the Spirit stopped them. God said, no, I don't want you in Asia Minor. I don't want you in Bithynia, at least not now. Now, why did all of this take place? There is a key truth at work here. We need to put it on the screen, I believe, that when our business is making disciples, God will lead us to the right people at the right place at the right time. And Psalm 37, 23 will be true in your life, the same as it was true in Paul's life, that the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. God was providentially guiding the steps of the apostle Paul. Not one time did he say, I sensed in my spirit that the spirit said to do this or there. God used circumstances, God used trials, God used other things to keep Paul from going there or there. And Paul was never the kind to turn around and back up. So what did he do? He just kept going straight. And he came to a place called Troas. It was at the edge of the GNC. Now he could not go straight ahead. He was shut up to faith. And there in Troas, overnight, he had a vision. He saw a man from Macedonia who was saying to him, Paul, come over and help us. And so the next day, Paul and his companions bought passage on a ship that would sail across the Aegean Sea to the west where they never intended to go at this time. And God brought them to Macedonia. Now, let me tell you something. There's something very big and there's something very important for you and me today taking place in that event right there. Do you know what it is? By going from Troas to Philippi, some 200 miles or so across the Aegean Sea, the apostle Paul and his companions left Asia where the gospel, the only place the gospel had been preached heretofore was in Asia, the Middle East. And now for the first time, the gospel came to Europe. Came to Europe. You've heard of that place, haven't you? And from Europe, the gospel from Philippi and places like Berea and places like Thessalonica, the gospel spread and from Corinth, it spread north and west. And eventually, it got to Rome. But it also went northward into places that became known as Germany and France. 
And then they came to another body of water, the English Channel. And God led some missionary to get on a boat and sail the the few miles across the English Channel. And the gospel came to England. And then through captivity, the gospel came to Ireland. And from those places in Europe, the gospel was brought by those who separated from a corrupt church and wanted freedom of worship to come to America and founded this place, this new world. And don't let the the people tell you in the world and the culture today that this country was not founded on Christian principles. It was founded as a place for the worship of the living God and the preaching of the gospel. And it is our responsibility to do all that we can to see that that truth continues to advance. And one thing you can do, by the way, is to vote. Thanks, Bob. You ought to have had about another 75 people saying amen to that. The gospel came to Europe in a totally unplanned way. Paul was going to go to Asia Minor. He wanted to go to places like Ephesus and other places in that region or to that raw land, uncivilized land to the north, to Bithynia. But God led him to the heart of a Roman colony in Philippi. And God led him to a prayer meeting where the women were meeting on the Sabbath day. And there was a businesswoman there by the name of Lydia. That was the place of her conversion. Notice number two, the power of her conversion. Look at verse 14. It says very plainly, the Lord opened her heart. She was a worshiper of God amongst a group of women who were worshipers of God, who were there to study the Old Testament scriptures. But even though she was a worshiper of God, she had a closed heart. She didn't know the gospel message. The gospel was in those Old Testament verses and passages, places like Isaiah 53, Genesis 2 and 3 and 4. And Genesis 22, and all through the prophetic messages, the gospel was there, but her heart was closed to it. She didn't understand it. She could not comprehend it. I don't know if she was a Jewish woman or not, but she was following the Jewish ways, worshiping on the Sabbath day. But in the preaching of the gospel, the Lord opened her heart. Can I tell you, that is the only way of salvation. It's the only way. Our hearts are dead. Our hearts are not just contaminated, but are made absolutely poisoned and useless by sin like a dead fish in a stream being carried along 
We have no power to swim against the current of this age and of this world until God opens our hearts and we respond in faith as Lydia did. The power of her conversion was from God. The power of her conversion was through the gospel. She is a living example and truth of Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the non-Jew. It is the same gospel. It's not a different gospel. It is the same gospel. And that gospel is what powers conversion, the preaching of the gospel. All of a sudden, those pieces, those Bible studies of the Old Testament for Lydia began to fit together. The puzzle was coming together, and the fulfillment and the picture that is presented is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Paul preached salvation through Jesus, and she was converted. She was saved. That's the power of her conversion. Let's look at verse 15, the last verse of our text. For it gives to us what is the proof of her conversion. And I challenge you, professor of faith in Christ, I challenge you to see if your faith measures up to the proof of her conversion. I think there are five ways in one verse she shows a changed heart, and a saved soul. First of all, look at her heart. After this, the Scripture says, she was what? Baptized. After this, she was baptized. She wanted to follow the Lord. She wanted to identify with God's people. She wanted others to know outwardly that something had changed inwardly. What had changed inwardly? She had been baptized with the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit baptism. That is conversion. But it is demonstrated and it is illustrated in outward baptism, baptism in water. The water did not save her. The water was not her conversion. The water was a testimony. I'm convinced right there in that river where they had had the Bible study on its banks. She stepped down into the water and followed the Lord in baptism. Why? Because God had changed her heart. I've been asked over the years of ministry by people who make a profession of faith, can you just baptize me privately? I mean, I, I'm, not in, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to be baptized publicly. I, I, don't, I don't want to join a church or, or do any of that, but I do want to follow Jesus. Will you baptize me privately? And the answer to that is no, 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 a thousand times no. It is an abomination to God. It is a slap in the face of God. 
It is to say, I'm happy for you to give me the gift of eternal life. I'm looking forward to coming to heaven, but I don't want anybody to know that I love you, that I'm a follower of you, that I'm willing to take my stand for you, that I will identify with God's people whom you died for. Let me tell you something, folks. We've said it before. When God saves the person, he saves them from something. He saves them from the wrath of God on sin. He saves them to something. He saves them to a new life and a home in heaven. But he also saves you into something. He saves you into the body of Christ, the people of God, and the idea that you can be some kind of free agent, some kind of a person living for God out there without identifying with the church, without being a part of the Lord's church, without casting in your lot with the Lord's church. You are fooling yourself. It is a lie of the enemy. Salvation is very personal, but it is never private. It is never private. There is no private walk with Christ. Look at her heart. She was publicly baptized. Look at her home. The Bible says not only was she baptized, but and her household. She had family members. She had no doubt those who were employees who worked with her and who traveled with her. And they had a place of residence in this place known as Philippi, this Roman colony. And so she shared the gospel. She wanted her working companions. She wanted her children if she had children. Her husband if she had a husband. Those who were her family members to hear the same gospel and receive the same life and the same hope in Christ. Look at her home. They too were saved and they too were baptized. She was instrumental in that. That is a proof of conversion. Look at her humility. Look at the words she spoke. Paul, if you judge me faithful, do you hear humility in that statement? She's not bragging about her faith. She's not here talking about how how much of a different person she is now. But in humility, if you judge me faithful, she's going to make an appeal to him. It's going to be an appeal of hospitality. If you judge me faithful, you are the man of God. You are the messenger of God. I need your input in my life. Do you consider me a person of real faith. And if you judge me faithful, look at her hospitality. Come to my house. Come to my house. She wanted to show hospitality to the servants who were sharing the gospel of Christ, who were doing the work of missions. My friend, hospitality is a mark of conversion that we want to open our homes and our goods, our possessions, our pocketbooks, our generosity to those who are the people of God to help them, to assist them, and to help speed them along the way. But look at not only her heart, her home, her humility, her hospitality. Look at her hunger. She prevailed upon us. I don't know how the conversation went. 
But evidently, the, the idea of prevailing is the idea of, of, of prevailing in your argument, of winning the conversation. Evidently, Paul and maybe his traveling companions, maybe they made some kind of resistance to going to her house. I don't know how it happened, but, but she was convincing. She would not take no for an answer. She wanted to know more. She had heard now the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were so many questions raging through her mind and her heart from the Old Testament scriptures that she had studied. There's so much more she wanted to know. She prevailed upon them with her hospitality, but it wasn't just to share what she owned with them. It was to hear more of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The place of her conversion, a providentially prepared place. For me, it was in a church on the corner of 23rd and Broadway in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1962, and I was nine years old. I don't know why I was there that night. It was a Wednesday night of revival meeting for Pete's sake. My family didn't go to church. My grandparents did. They were very godly people. And when I was with them, I always went to church, but my mom and dad were more interested in drinking and other things than they were the things of God. In fact, I never will forget the one Sunday morning that we went to church, and it was the weekend of the time change, and we forgot to change our clocks, and we got to church in time for Sunday school. It made my dad cussing mad. He's willing to go to church on that Sunday, but the last thing he wanted was to go to Sunday school. God got him. But on that Wednesday night, the gospel message became so prevailing to me and became so appealing to me that I was at the back of that auditorium about twice as long as this auditorium with a middle aisle and I kept easing out and looking to see who was going to go forward as they sang just as I am, verse after verse, after verse, after verse, after verse. And nobody would go forward. Nobody was answering that message. And I was so tormented of soul in my heart. I was burdened so deeply and I didn't know a whole lot, but I knew I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want what God has to offer. And for me, there was no standing there in that pew towards the back of that auditorium and getting saved there. It meant I was going to have to do something. It wasn't a matter of works. It was a matter of surrender. And I remember that first step, the hardest step I've ever made in my life. And I don't remember hardly any of the steps afterwards. It was as though God was carrying me down. That pastor, Brother Bob Batson, 
read scripture. And all I remember are the words that he was pointing out. Eternal life. Eternal life. I wanted that. I wanted that. Don't you? Don't you? My God saved me that night. And I want to tell you that salvation changes things. It changes things. God worked a thousand different providences to bring that pastor to that church at that time, that evangelist at that church on that night, and my family to be there when nobody wanted to be there, all engineered by God who controls the universe. And he opened my heart, a providentially prepared place. Every one of you that are saved, you've got such a place also. You've got such a place also. The power of that conversion is the gospel. It's from God. It's the gospel. It's not your power, not my power, not our ability to earn it or deserve it. The power of God unleashed through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all the drama of redemption. And the proof? Well, we are the living proof day by day by our obedience, our love, our devotion, and our willingness to share that gospel with others. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this amazing and inspiring story. Thank you for a man who was willing to go where you led, even when it wasn't his plan. Thank you for the power of your gospel. May it change our lives evermore, every day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.